0: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California. I'm Michelle Miao. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a member of the Board of Governors and also a producer and host of a program here at the Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California. The motto of the program is your A through Z covering the LGBT L M N O P and everyone in between. Thank you so much for being here for those of you who are here at the club itself, and for those who are joining us online. Also, thanks to our supporter, the Bernard Osher Foundation, for making today's program possible, and this program is part of our Good Lit series. And now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our speaker today. Skylar Baylor is an advocate, an an activist, an educator, an all-around inspirational person. He's here with us. He's made history as the first trans transgender person, transgender man, to compete in an NCAA Division I men's sports team. And his story has been on big news, such as 60 Minutes with Leslie Stahl. He's here to talk about his new book, He, She, They, and uh, how we talk about gender and why it matters. Before we welcome Skylar to the stage, we're gonna play a quick short clip.
1: This is how I explain what being transgender means to kids. When a baby is born, the doctor looks at the baby and says, oh, this is a little girl, or, oh, this is a little boy. And sometimes the doctor gets that wrong. So when I was born, the doctor looked at me and said, this is a little girl. And so everybody thought that I was a little girl. But when I got older, I realized, wait, that's not actually who I am. And when I was able to tell people, I said, I'm not a little girl, I'm a little boy. And that just means that I am transgender. That who everybody said that I was isn't actually who I am. And I just had to explain that to people. And there's nothing wrong with being transgender.
0: There's absolutely nothing wrong with being transgender. That's right, Skylar. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. You know, I was looking back at the uh, 60 Minutes interview with Leslie Stahl. Oh, am the... <laughs> glad You have that reaction now. Because I did the same thing. But I also uh, looked at the interview with Ellen DeGeneres and I kind of almost had the same reaction. And I guess because even my own education as an LGBTQIA plus person has evolved and uh, that, you know, this, this question that I think even myself I used to have for our community was the when did you know question. Sure. But after reading your book, I now realize that it's not when you know it's it, it, especially when you define gender as who you are, so let's start with defining gender
1: All right, a big question, okay. <laughs> um, I have one thought though that I want to say first of all, hi everybody I'm really glad to be here. Thank you so much for coming out at, at noon at lunchtime. Um, I hope all of you have either eaten or are going to eat because food's important. Um, one of the things you just said it just made me think it's not it's not it's not when we when we necessarily know it's more, when do we tell people, right? And I think that distinction is really important. Um, when we think about gender, I think, you know, there's lots of different ways to define gender, especially if we're unspecific and a lot of people are right. We throw around the terms, gender, we throw around the term sex, we even throw around the term sexuality. Um, and at its core, I think gender can represent a lot of different words, right? Gender can mean gender identity. Gender can mean biological sex. Gender can mean what somebody was assigned at birth. Um, and, and, and sort of everything in between and beyond, right? Um, so I like to segment into what are you actually talking about when we think about gender, right? Are you talking about what I was assigned at birth? Um, because that's what most most people use as currency. Um, are you talking about my genitals? <laughs> because that's also something people use as currency. Or are you talking about a sort of bio-so- psychosocially informed identity that we don't really quite know exactly where and how it forms, um, but we do know is very important. Um, and I think that's that's the gender that I'm most passionate about understanding, which is root in identity that is influenced by, again, biopsychosocial roots that um, is something that we've deemed very important, but is largely socially constructed.
0: I was thinking about this. You know, you've done many, many thousands of videos. You've educated millions of people, uh, and especially around the world, and talking about gender, identity, sexual orientation, and expression. Um, why book? Why do you think a book now?
1: Why a book? I mean, I think I, I'm an avid journaler, so I've been like writing my whole life in many ways. And so I think writing is just another way to communicate my ideas, my thoughts. Um, my primary job has been speaking. Um, and I think writing seems to sort of pair well with speaking, if that makes sense. Um, I, I really, though, to be quite honest with you, I thought if I wrote a book, I would have to, I, I would, I would um, stop speaking. I would stop answering all the same questions. It turns out I was quite wrong about that, um, as in, indicated by being here to talk to you all. Um, I've answered more questions. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, the, the, the more serious answer is that we've seen this upwelling of anti-trans rhetoric, right? So many people have deep opinions, very misinformed, or rather just not informed opinions about trans people, about gender, um, and they're spewing them from every place possible, including the 507 anti-trans pieces of legislation introduced in at least 44 states around the country. Um, and so this, you know, this this book was born before those those bills were introduced but it's in this increasing environment of anti-trans rhetoric right um and my primary goal was to bridge this gap between the fact that most americans say they never met a trans person right can't define the word transgender but everybody's talking about us and if we've got these two truths we have to find a way to get people to move across it and i think that's through education and a book is the most widest reaching um, in many ways forms of that education
0: Thank you for saying that. That's exactly where I was going. Was, <laughs> cool. You know, so we got all these yeah, yeah, anti-LGBTQIA bills, specifically anti-trans bills. They're targeting youths, um, gender-affirming care, and also even, I mean, freedom of expression, sure. you know, drag kings, drag queens, don't say a gay bill. I, there are over 400 bills, and so we can't go through them all today. Yeah. But one of them is also the banning of books. Yeah. And uh, the first thing I think about when I think about books and who assigns them, who gives them out, who teaches you things, are educators, uh, parents, and, you know, these are for children. What are, you know, some of the responses, uh, or I I know you've gotten a lot, but maybe one that's super important to you Mm. that has come from... um, the education community yeah. since the book is launched.
1: Yeah. I was actually just talking about this with my editor. Um, we have gotten a lot of interesting emails from elderly folks. I have multiple emails from people whose the first line says, hi, Skylar, I am 81 years old, or I am 82 years old, or many 80-something-year-old people um, who are saying, I'm reading your book. Uh, and, and a couple of them have implored me to remember that old people take time to learn. <laughs> like, okay, thank you. Um, we kind of knew that part. Um, but, uh, but several of them have also reminded us that old people can learn. And, and I think it's one of the things that I often fall back on is, um, is this reminder that the barriers we create for ourselves to say we can't learn something or we're too stuck in patterns are self-imposed largely, right? They're restricted because we're afraid to learn. Um, and and I think these emails I've received, especially from older folks declaring their elderliness um, and their willingness to learn is a reminder that anybody can learn.
0: Absolutely, so speaking of which, the book does an incredible job of, I mean, it starts with even just terminology or mm-hmm. you know vocabulary that might be new for, I'm gonna say all of us, mm-hmm. even those of us who are in the LGBTQIA plus community. I talked about my own, you know, learning and evolution. Um, we we brought up gender, mm-hmm. gender identity. There are a couple of things in here that I think are worthy of all of us having a discussion of defining, such yeah. as non-binary.
1: Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So a non-binary was actually for me a little bit difficult to write as one, um, answer to, because over the years I've, so I don't identify as non-binary I want to be really careful in, in not trying to share something as my lived experience when it's not. Um, so what I did was I asked followers multiple times over the years, um, what does non-binary mean to you? And I collected people's inputs about what they said and sort of created a, a sort of a con- conglomeration, if you will, in addition to doing research and, you know, talking to key figures in the, in the space. Um, um, non-binary is a very expansive term, an umbrella term that that uh, most people use to define a gender identity that doesn't fit within the two binary ends, if you will, of gender spectrum within male, sort of classically male, if you will, and classically female. Um, and a lot of people use it in different ways. Some people use it to describe gender expression only. Some people use it to describe gender identity solely. Some people use it to describe all of the above. Um, and I think it's really important that we let people tell us what it means to them. That doesn't mean going and asking every single non-binary person, what does it mean to you, right? Um, it means letting them tell you if they want, right? Having a sort of framework for what it means, um, and then sort of leaving it up to people to engage with you as they will. Um, so that's, the, that's a sort of broad definition.
0: Now, are in biological sex, yeah. which I actually haven't had to talk about you Know my biological sex with the word biological in front of it in a long time. That's a privilege mm-hmm. I have as being part of the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems to come up like all the time, especially when uh, somebody wants to not believe that you're part of the transgender community or uh, they really are trying to reduce you mm-hmm. as a person who used the word reductive a lot in mm-hmm. the book. Let's mm-hmm. talk about. Biological
1: sex. Yeah. Yeah. So biological sex is something that people think is a, a simple category, right? They'll say, okay, but, you know, Skyler, what's your biological sex? Like, what are you biologically speaking? Um, and I, I honestly want to answer I'm made up of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, just like you, if you really want to get into it. But um, I guess that would be chemistry or chemically. But anywho, um, biological sex is technically is talking about anatomical features, biological, obviously, features, um, physiological features, right? So these are things like reproductive anatomy, internal and external genitalia, um, things like hormone concentrations, hormone presence, hormone receptors, um, and of course, chromosomes. Um, I say of course, because that's what a lot of people think of when they think about biological sex. But all of the things I just named don't always develop in these neat little categories of only male or only female. And even the words I'm saying, male and female, these are categories that humans have put onto these phenotypes, these presentations of biology. we're often not taught that, right? We're taught when we're in in whatever, sixth grade, when we have health class, like this is a boy and this is a girl, XX equals female and XY equals male. And then that's it. And then what happens is then we talk about trans identity and people like, no, you are biologically this. I learned this in sixth grade. And it's like, wait, wait, folks, we exist beyond sixth grade. We actually learn more things after sixth grade. And oftentimes those things we learn after sixth grade are really important, right? And they don't negate necessarily everything we learned in sixth grade, but they expand it, right? They complicate it. And that is, I think, the core point that I like to remind people about biological sex. It is so much more complicated than what we're taught about in sixth grade. And people will say, no, 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 it's basic biology. And I'll say, actually, it's more complicated biology, right? And we should welcome that updated information but a lot of people don't want to.
0: You've had to have a lot of conversations around this um, especially as an athlete and an athlete yes. you know competing uh, at the collegiate level, right? And let's kind of start there and break that down and when you are presented with arguments that trans people should not compete whether you know you're a trans man, you should not compete uh the men's team, you're a trans woman, you should not compete in the women's team, what are, you know, your responses to a lot of this?
1: Yeah. um, Well, I'll start by saying that there's no one response. Um, I wrote a book about it for a reason. So chapter, I believe it's chapter 24 is all about this. And I strongly encourage you to read that, especially it's the only thing that you read because it's such a complicated conversation that people are so frequently having now. Um, I do encourage you to to take a look at that chapter because there's so many facts that people are missing, right? Um, Or that they're actively being lied to about it. Um, Most people don't care a ton about trans masculine, trans men athletes in the men's category. Um, the reason for that is the same reason that they care a lot about trans women in the women's category. It's misogyny, right? There is an over hyper focus on the women's category. Why? Because there's a hyper focus on women's bodies, right? Which sounds a lot like what policing of women's bodies, which is also not new. Um, that exists because of misogyny, and then the, the lack of focus on trans men is also misogyny. And the reason is because people think that there's no possible way that somebody assigned female at birth like me could compete against other people assigned male at birth, right? Um, and trans men have consistently proven that that's, that's not the case. We actually can compete. I beat 85 and 87% of men in my event, all of which were not trans, unless I didn't know one trans guy. But okay, then maybe one trans guy I, I, I beat. Um, but mostly cis men that I beat, right? Did I come out number one? No, but did I beat 85%, 87%? Yes. Um, so there, there is, and I'm not the only one, right? There's also Chris Mosier who's been on Team USA repeatedly. We've got Pat, Man- Pat Manuel who's boxing, right? So people say, well, it's, it's only in sports that aren't that physical. First of all, I think swimming is quite physical <laughs> um, yeah. and so is running, but if I, maybe you all haven't run or swam. Um, but, but boxing is considered quite contact, right? And Pat Manuel is undefeated against cis men, right? So we have examples of trans men competing and winning against cisgender men, people who are not trans, right? Men who are not trans. And yet nobody's talking about that, right? Because it doesn't reinforce this narrative that anybody assigned female at birth is worse at sports than anybody assigned male at birth. Again, underpinned right by misogyny um so i think we we really have to think about these sort of arguments more critically um and examine the facts that are presented because a lot of the things that we're learning and and hearing from the media are lies right? Not just like little lies. They're straight up lies. The, the, the conversation about Leah Thomas, the transgender swimmer who swam at UPenn, everybody said she's dominating, breaking all these records. At the meet that most people were talking about, okay, NCAA championships, there were 27 records that were broken. 27 records, okay? 18 of them were broken by a single person. Not Leah Thomas, Kate Douglas. And she did dominate. Absolutely. She dominated that competition. It was an amazing meet to watch, but nobody cared. They cared about Leah Thomas who broke how many records? Zero. Exactly zero. She didn't break a national record. She didn't break a meet record. She did not even break a pool record. No American record, right? no international records. She set a, a best time for herself. That's it. All right. And her best, her time actually was nine seconds slower than Katie Ledecky's American record. Nine seconds in a pool, in a pool race. I don't know if you all there watch swimming. Nine seconds is a whole pool length. All right. So this conversation about domination, that's the one person everybody can name did not even break an American record, a meet record. And I shouldn't have to prove that she's not breaking records in order to that. She's, you know, fair. I don't say that about Kate Douglas. I'm like, amazing. She broke 18 records. Cool. Dominate, please. But when it's trans women, people say it's unfair. Um, So my number one thing that I wanna say, sorry, this is a long answer, but this is a can of worms, um, is that if anybody talks to me about trans women dominating the women's category, the first thing I say is, name for me one trans woman who has won a national or international competition. Right now, name for me one. You all should be able to name Leah Thomas because I just said it, but name another one. Can anybody in this room name another trans woman who has won a national or international competition? Okay, we got one person, all right? So if trans women were actually dominating women's sports, don't you think you'd be able to name a few of them, right? Maybe two or three, okay? No, most people can't. Most people can't even name Leah Thomas, but I gave you that one, right? Um, the reality is it's only been a couple dozen, right? So 24, 26, I haven't checked the stats recently. But there's only been a, like 24, 26 trans women who have won international or national competitions in the history of recorded sports, all right, so this whole trans woman domination thing, if trans women had this unimaginable advantage over cisgender women, don't you think we would have seen some evidence? But we have none, literally none. So that's the other thing is this data that everybody's talking about, this science that they want to rely on doesn't exist.
0: So then why make such a big deal out of it?
1: Oh, because it's a great way to control people right? It is a fantastic way to control people, especially the trans athlete conversation, right? So they've picked two very, um, fear-inducing conversations. One being healthcare. They're mutilating bodies. They're affecting children. We have to protect children. right? So that's the the gender-forming healthcare argument. right? And the other one is sports. And these two things are the two things that are especially sports, more so than healthcare, honestly, um, is a way to drive the moderate. Those people that are like, well, I'm not quite sure. And it's even a way to get people who are on the liberal side to say, but I'm not really sure the most common response of somebody who is hateful or let's, let's not use hateful. The most common resistance I hear from people who are previously supportive of me is Skylar. You know what? I I support you. And I I was so glad when you were joining the men's team and I, I love what you do. I love your work. I just, I'm not sure about Leah. I'm not sure about trans women. And that is exactly the power. Because they're putting this wedge in here, they're saying it's a problem. There is no problem. Even let's just say, you know what? Fine, let's say Leah Thomas is a problem. We have one trans woman in one event in one sport one year. All right, what about the fact that 70 to 80 percent of the NCAA's membership, so the college sports, does not comply with Title IX? If you all don't know what Title IX is, that is the law or the whatever jurisdiction that says, hey, we actually need to allocate equal funding to men's and women's sports. 70 to 80% of schools in the NCAA do not meet this qualification. And we're worried about Leah Thomas, right? So it's a distraction. It's a way to control. It's a way to actively police the women's category so that we police women's bodies. We say this is woman enough and this isn't, right? We say this distracts from or hurts public safety. And these arguments sound exactly word for word like the same arguments that they'd use to resist integration, right? So these are all integrated to each other. They're all intersectional. And the women that they affect the most are black and brown women right? So the women who have already been called not, not woman enough or too masculine or too strong or whatever, right? These, these arguments and these laws are going to disproportionately affect masculine women. I say in quotes, because who is deciding who is masculine, largely it's white supremacy, right? So these are, are you know, women like Serena Williams, Castro Semenya, Simone Biles, Richards, Richardson, the list goes on. All of those women are black, So we have to also think about this more expansively. The 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 encroachment on trans bodies, the encroachment on trans rights, is an encroachment on bodily autonomy altogether, and largely fueled with very patriarchal and white supremacist, anti-black standards of who gets allowed, who gets access to man or womanhood.
0: We are taking your questions, by the way. And so a little later, I'll come to you, audience, for questions. I believe a, a mic will be set up. And we also are taking comments and questions from our online audience. Skylar has made it known and mentioned to me that he has no fear. Ask him, say whatever. It's going to be a learning moment for all I of I didn't us. say I have no yeah. fear.
1: I said I'll answer anything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I added that
1: myself.
0: Uh, Speaking of of fear, so yes, there's a lot of fear around uh, trans bodies and competition and sports, especially in schools. Mm. Uh, but in general, I mean, you mentioned it earlier—the entire uh, you know trans laws that are trying to be passed. So let's talk about trying to ban gender affirming care, especially for young people.
1: Yeah, it's a. I mean, I think it's devastating, and I I want us to go back. I always. Um, I'm A heart-led, a passion-led person, but I love facts. <laughs> I love logic, um, and maybe to a fault sometimes. But in any case, um, I I think we need to always return to the facts. So, what are the facts? When we think about gender affirming care, first of all, what is gender affirming care? Right. Most people, when they think about gender affirming care, the first thing that comes to mind is what surgery. Right. People are like, oh, cutting off people's genitals. Right. Um, and that's what we are being told by the media, by um, important well, I don't have importance, right word, powerful politicians. (laughs) Um, And they're going around saying like, well, we don't want five-year-olds to have their genitals chopped off. Nobody is doing that except the Republicans. All right. Because the same laws that are banning gender affirming care, saying trans kids can't transition, they have specific carve-outs. Every single one of these bills that have been proposed have a specific little carve-out that says except for intersex kids. Those ones, we can mess with their genitals. And we can do it without their consent and without their parents' consent. All right, so when a kid is born intersex, intersex means between sex, so somebody whose body doesn't present in these sort of binary categories of, like I said, these classically male and female categories, quotations around all of that, um, so sort of maybe ambiguous genitalia, some combination of different types of um, uh, presentations of, of biological sex, they're born intersex, doctors often perform these, quote, corrective, they're really mutilative, but corrective surgeries on these babies, sometimes without even parental consent. All right. And that is horrible. And it can sterilize a kid. It can create um, chronic pain for the whole life. It can incorrectly gender them. Right. So you sort of create a trans experience almost. Um, And this is devastating. And every single law that says we don't want to have surgery on kids has a has a carve out to allow this. What does this mean? They're not protecting kids. They're protecting cisgenderness. Right. They're protecting normalcy. Right. Strong quotes around that word, normalcy. Uh, and it's devastating. Um, and I think that's a hole that we have to see in their conversations because otherwise we think, oh, well, they just, they just care about kids. No, they don't, right? If they did, they would actually make laws around the number one leading cause of death for children, which is what? Not trans people. It's gun violence,
0: mm-hmm.
1: all right? So uh, there's a huge gap of just the fact. We haven't even talked about why gender affirming care is necessary. We're just talking about all the other things around it, right? But i also say... Every single major medical, psychological, and psychiatric association affirms that gender-affirming care is appropriate, um, and it can be life-saving, right? So they're not listening to the medical doctors either. They're not listening to the experts. They're saying, you know what? We know better because we're Ron DeSantis, right? We're Greg Abbott. and Therefore, we know everything, right? Um, And the reality is they have no expertise in this space, right? They just have hate, and they have a a desire for power.
0: Well, gender-affirming care saved your life. And Absolutely. you include that, uh, you know, the, your personal story, obviously, in the book. Um, and talk about talk about why you you tell people how it saved your life. I think I think wh- who was it? it? Yes, it probably was Leslie who asked if you regretted, you know, transitioning or, hmm. or kind of something along.
1: Probably that know, sounds those like lines.
0: her. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but that's what we. I think what people really need to know about gender affirming care is, you know, put the myths aside. Mm-hmm. This is life saving.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, we, we know gender affirming care can be life-saving. We can look at the, um, t- you know, the depression, subjective well being, suicidality statistics that come when we don't provide it or when we delay it, right? We even know that if you delay care for a kid who wants it, the later that they get access to the care, the more um, likely they are to experience negative mental health outcomes. Um, and so there there's a lot of research that supports that. But aside from all the numbers, you can go read the book and see all the numbers. I put all the citations in there. Um, it was a, A fun time making 350 citations for the book. Um, But personal experience wise, I for so long felt disconnected from myself and my body um, and i didn't have the words to explain it i didn 't have the experiences to understand I didn't have the people to reflect back to me what was happening in myself um, and when I finally did have it, I think there was this huge relief and and space that could be made for myself, not even necessarily in doing the changes all of that that as well but just saying oh i'm there's nothing wrong with me i i, I haven't you know i haven't come up with this identity on my own like I just I just am this like this is who I am and I get to say, I need these shifts in, my, in myself to make myself happier, right? And there was a time where I really was... Um a conflict with the concept of gender affirming care because i didn't want to have to get surgery or take hormones or make these changes to feel comfortable um but then I, i i came to this point where i was like but why not why would i not take a step to make myself happier this doesn't hurt anybody right me not having breasts me getting surgery me taking testosterone literally none of these things hurts anybody else or really should impact anybody else either why not let myself have this step of making myself happier? Um, and I think that's why I, I, you know, I love talking about things as life-saving because it, I think it's important, but I also, there's a part of me that's like, it doesn't have to be life-saving for it to be important either. And I want us to walk into that. Um, I have conversations often with my clients and my support group uh, attendees and, and people will say, well, I don't feel like I'm going to die if I don't get top surgery, but I really want it. I'm like, Great right? We need to understand that wanting is enough, right? And, and, and the desire to have um, better, right? The desire to enjoy your life instead of just sort of like crawl through it, do the things. If you can, do the things, access those things that make your life better. And I think that's a centerpiece of gender affirming care access is we should allow people to have agency and autonomy over their bodies. If they think something's going to improve their lives, let them,
0: that right there agency and autonomy you know for for people uh many parents are afraid to give their kids that yeah uh, but there is a part of the book that you answer the question you know do kids actually know that's a growing yeah. conversation i think parents and it's all it's all hidden behind fear right well, i might be making the wrong decision for my child
1: yeah I have a lot of compassion for parents who are worried, um, and especially right now, they are digesting a massive amount of lies, disinformation, propaganda intended to make them afraid. Like The goal is to make those parents afraid so that they don't allow their kids to access gender-affirming care. So I have a lot of compassion for those parents. Um, the problem is that their love for their kid gets misdirected into fear that then doesn't cause them to protect the kid, but rather protect their fear. Right, And that's an important distinction that, that I think a lot of parents need to hear. And I'm not a parent. so you can t- If you're a parent, you take it with a grain of salt. I, I'm not a parent. I will say that. <laughs> um, but I have interacted with a lot of parents. And there is a, a big mistake most parents make, which is they feel fear. And then they try to do something to stop that fear instead of listening to their kid and helping their kid right? We project our fears onto those around us. And then we try to stop feeling that fear without understanding that the, the way of um, helping whoever we want to help doesn't necessarily mean stopping our fear. And the fear that a lot of parents have is what if I hurt my kid, right? And the answer to that is you are absolutely going to hurt your kid because that's how love works. We're going to hurt people and we're going to be hurt. And the best thing is not to then try to stop that Don't try to hurt your kid, but it's what you do next, right? It's about how you care. It's about resiliency. It's about vulnerability. It's about saying, oops, that that didn't work. Okay, let's do something else, you know? Um, And I think we need to build that relational resiliency, honestly, between parents and kids. Because if we don't, we we sort of, I think we being adults and and parents, reinforce this perfection narrative that doesn't work. Um, So a lot of parents are afraid. Honestly, the data, again, doesn't support that many kids reject or, sorry, um, regret their transitions. There's almost no uh, uh, percentages that the regret rates are like 0.3% up to maybe 3%. They're very, very low. Um, And just to give you, like, context, most elective surgeries have regret rates in, like, the 50 to 60% ranges, Um, okay? So, like, knee surgery, for example, that can be elective. Some 65% of people who get, like, knee—it's, like, bonkers, the, the comparison, okay? So there's very little regret rates, but even if they do, when you say to a kid, I believe you, that is the most powerful thing you can tell them because it not only says you can trust me when you tell me something, but more importantly, it says you can trust you. And when we tell kids, you can trust yourself, we build their ability to be resilient. And that means that later, if they do somehow regret their decisions or they are like, crap, that's not me, they're going to be okay because they're gonna be able to work through that with the trust that they're okay, right? But if we teach them from a young age, you're wrong. The thing that you think you know about yourself, you're wrong. You create this really dangerous invalidating childhood environment. And that is the hotbed for the development of mental illness and suicidality.
0: Would you mind sharing um, your story of kind of you know how you helped your your parents also through the process and then i guess now would be a a better time to ask you know and sharing the when did you know sure uh and that journey now that we understand gender identity a little bit more
1: yeah um the when did you know questions always like, I think I bump around there. I mean, there was a specific moment and I write about in the book when I was like, oh my God, what if I'm transgender? And that was the first time those sort of, that word I, I ascribed to myself, transgender. Um, and that happened uh, during a summer when I was in a residential treatment center for my eating disorder. I was really struggling with my mental health um, and I was starting to sort of dig into pieces of why I was struggling with my mental health and gender had become a consistent theme. Um, and so that was, there was a moment where I, I sort of, I had this like, I don't know, if it's a revelation or a realization where I was just like sort of, Oh my gosh, maybe this is the thing. Um, it wasn't a fun realization. I wasn't excited about being transgender. I was like, Holy crap. How do I get rid of this thing? Um, because of the fear that I was going to be hurt and harmed and, um, and, discriminated against or just the the, the added sort of difficulty it would bring to my life. Um, But I also, I say it's difficult to answer because I think in many ways I knew from a very young age. Um, I was incredibly gender ambiguous. I played boys soccer, boys lacrosse, boys baseball. And and for all intents and purposes in many ways was like the other boys. Um, But I didn't have access to the language, right? I didn't have access to my own courage, my own assertiveness. Um, And so I wasn't able to say this is who I am. Um, My parents were very supportive as as, as, um, as far as loving me goes, I never felt unloved. I never felt fearful that they would kick me out or that I didn't have a place in their home um, Never had a fear of financial insecurity because they were always there for me. Um, and that's a huge privilege, right? There's so many trans people that do not have that experience, which is a very low bar that we all need to work on, right? Um, but I, I didn't have those fears. So I was very lucky. Um, but there was also a lot of misunderstanding, um, a lot of difficulty, a lot of why are you doing this? Um, you know, how how are you gonna, you know, what, what are you gonna do about sports? What do you mean you wanna cut off your breasts? Like, what do you mean you wanna change these things? Like, I think there was a lot of, of resistance, especially to my physical transition, um, because I think they were fearful, right? And um, unfortunately, at the time, despite there wasn't there wasn't like a global anti-trans movement the way there is now, um, but there was a lot of misinformation. And all of my doctors said no. I had multiple therapists and multiple doctors um, because I was in treatment, right, residential treatment at the time, who said no, you can't transition, no, you can't get top surgery, you can't take hormones, you can't. They were like, it's just a phase, right? You, you need to wait to see if this is real, um, and so. Because 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 of that medical transphobia based on medical ignorance, all the doctors reinforced with my parents that this wasn't the right step. Um, I, thank God, was 18. (laughs) Um, And so I didn't need my parents' consent. Um, and so I went forth anyways and called every therapist I could until one finally said that I could. Um, and that was a privilege in and of itself to have that access. But I, I, the reason I share it this way in my answer is they didn't understand, um, but they loved me. And so there was a way that we could continue to converse because I felt that love. And eventually we had a very important conversation in which I said, I'm not asking you to understand. You keep saying, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. And that's why I can't move forward. I'm not asking you to get it. I'm not asking you to understand. I actually don't care if you understand or not. I just need you to trust me. And that's one of the themes that I try to communicate to parents or to anybody who wants to be an ally or be loving to a trans person is you don't have to understand, right? You can, and that's great. Comprehension is awesome, but compassion is so much more important and you'll get there, right? If you're compassionate, I think you'll get there. Um, But I think we use, I don't get it as a barrier and, and we have to stop doing that.
0: I'm going to turn to the audience very soon here for your questions. I think they see, is that a mic stand there to the, yes. Okay, great. So go ahead and um, stand, stand in front of the mic stand and uh, we'll get to your questions. Um, And then for the online comments, it's the reason why I have so many devices there. We text- <laughs> were going to text them to each other. And so, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, Go ahead. You were going to say something.
1: Oh, I was just going to say in the invitation to ask questions, um, I saw nobody get up. So that's OK. You, you can take your time to stand up. Um, but I truly do want you to ask whatever you're curious about. Um, my joke about I'm not I'm not afraid of your questions. I truly want you to ask them um, and ask them with whatever language you have. You might not have the right words. You might stumble. You might feel like you're being offensive. Great. Be offensive, all right? Walk into it, ask the question. If you think it's rude or offensive, definitely ask it because the chances are that somebody else probably has the question um, and we're all going to learn from any bumps along the way. I've, I've invited every audience I've ever spoken to to ask these questions in the ways that they, ha- they have, the words they've got. Um, and my favorite audience to, uh, to invite into this is kindergartners. I want to tell you something about kindergartners because they're, they're freaking awesome um, in case you don't have one or don't know what they're like. They have no filter, <laughs> okay? No filter. And what that means is they actually ask what they care about and they ask what's on their mind. So today access your inner kid gardener, have whatever question you have and ask it. Um, again, if it's rude or offensive, it's fine. We'll figure it out. I'll, I'll talk it with you. We're not going to butt your head off. It's going to be okay. Um, and, but don't take this invitation elsewhere. Okay. So if I say just because I'm trans and I'm saying, you know, ask me all these questions, please do not assume that all trans people will do the same thing, okay? Do not leave here and say, well, Skylar said I could ask him anything, so therefore you, random trans person, I will also ask you anything, okay? It is not every trans person's job to teach you about what it means to be trans, but it is my job. That is quite literally my job title is trans educator. So please um, use this opportunity. And now people have materialized.
0: (laughs) Okay, no filter question number one.
1: Yes. And if you could say your name and your pronouns, that would be fantastic. So I would say, hi, I'm Skylar. I use he, him. Um, You don't have to if you don't want to, but would love it if you could.
2: Hi, um, my name is Irene and my pronouns are she, her. Wonderful. Um, Two things before I ask the question. One, congratulations on your marriage.
1: Thank you. (laughs) And
2: um, two, thank you so much for your Instagram presence. That's how I found you. Wonderful. Um, My question is, uh, I have friends and family members who are in the trans community. And one of the things they have struggled with is leaving a community that they identified Mm -hmm. with previously, um, Mm -hmm. gay or lesbian. Mm -hmm. And they kind of get booted out what's that all about?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Um, thank you. This is a beautiful question. I appreciate it so much. Um, so before I came out as a trans man, I was living my life as a lesbian woman. Um, and, um, that was a large part of my adolescence in many ways. My high school years, I was out as, um, as gay and I was dating another person who was a gay woman as well um all my friends were gay um and that don't have to happen because none of us knew we were gay beforehand by the way we just like somehow all eventually ended up being gay so like maybe it is contagious. I'm kidding. It's not. Um, (laughs) I think we just confine each other, right? It's a vibe. Anywho, um, moving away from that territory. Um, I found a lot of home in, in the lesbian community and it always felt a little off to me. And I think both of those things are true. The off part was because I'm not a woman and some part of me knew that. And so being in this woman's space felt off. Right. Um, and when I, one of the, it's, it's, it's interesting you asked me this question because one of the primary things that actually stopped me from wanting to transition was the fear of losing my community. Um, and I remember having a conversation with my, uh, really good friend at the time, um, who is a lesbian. And I, and, and, um, I said to her, I was like, what, who am I going to date? Who am I going to be around? Like, what's going to happen? The lesbians aren't going to like me anymore. Um, and I had this, like this panic. Um, and actually one of the first biggest hate comments thread articles, whatever that I got was from a lesbian community saying, how dare you, um, um, align yourself with a patriarchy. Um, and so there's actually a lot of really, uh, turf arguments from some spaces. This comes from everywhere. It's not just from lesbians. It can be from any cis women. Right. Um, but I think there was, there was this upwelling of like, I'm, I'm, um, I'm I'm not only leaving womanhood and women's spaces, but I'm somehow betraying them um, by entering a a men's space, um, as a man. So I worked through a lot of, um, conflict for myself, I think in doing that. And I still, by the way, feel some of that conflict. um, but it's something I've learned how to hold as, as sort of conflicting dualities, right? Dialectic truths, if you will, to say, yes, I have this history of womanhood and I have an affinity to womanhood as, as a result. Right. Um, and, people don't see that in me anymore. And so I'm no longer a comrade. In fact, I can be easily perceived as an enemy, right? And the chapter in my book called um, Navigating Masculinity as a Transgender Man is all about this sort of duality of having walked the world in womanhood for the first 18 years of my life. And now walking the world as I do now. Right? Um, I, I was the object, right? The victim of misogyny for, the, for those years of my life. Now I'm expected to be an accomplice in misogyny. I'm expected to perpetuate it. And that is a deeply dysregulating truth um, that, I, that I hold in my life. Um, I started being angry about it in those beginning years. I'd be angry that I wasn't welcomed into those spaces, um, that I didn't feel that women found community with me anymore. And now, I, I, that anger has been able to sort of shift into grief um, and I hold that grief and it just comes with me because it is, it is grief. It's pain that I, I can't connect with people um, in the ways that I used to, um, that they see me as part of patriarchy, that they see me as something that could hurt them, even though I would never want to do that. And there's a deep understanding of learned to, to, to hold that I do wield the power of the patriarchy. If I speak over a woman, I am a man speaking over a woman, even though my history is very different, right? Even even if I don't intend to, if I walk 10 paces behind a woman at night, she might fear I'm following her, right? If I, if I mansplain, I'm still mansplaining, right? Which I unfortunately do often um, because I like to explain things and that's not good. Sometimes I need to be quiet, which I'm learning how to do. Um, but in any case, there's many pieces of male privilege that I now hold um, and I think I'm deeply aware of, because I haven't always held that. And I think it, if, um, to sort of close this answer, um, is something that I feel really called to step into, especially with other men, um, especially cisgender men, men who are not trans, because there's, there's an understanding I have of our manhood that they might not. That was a lot of answer, but hopefully it's helpful, yeah. yeah.
0: Hi, um, my name's Theo, pronouns Theo. He him. Um, and I was just wondering, um, as someone who's also dealt with a very um, interesting intersection between eating disorder treatment and trans healthcare, mm-hmm. how do you think providers can just do better with that?
1: Mm, I need to write another book, huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. um, there is a great book about this. Um, Oh gosh, let me think of the. It's like gender identity and eating disorder treatment. It's a very like obvious title, but um, you can look it up by if you write Sand Chang, Sand like Sand at the beach, and Chang like Chang, um, uh, and eating disorder book, it will come up. Um, They're a non-binary. a non-binary Asian American uh, eating disorder provider and they're awesome. So uh, a quick resource is uh, like, that's a great one. And if you're an eating disorder provider, you should read that book. Absolutely. Uh, Because if you are doing eating disorder work, you are definitely interacting with gender ideals and therefore you should absolutely be thinking about trans people. Even if you don't have trans clients, gender ideals, by the way, affect everybody, right? So if y'all who are not trans, guess what? You have a gender. Right, And you've also been affected by your gender, which you might not notice. Um, I'm going to bet most of the women have noticed that in some way, shape, or form. Um, but if you're a man, maybe you haven't noticed that gender has limited you in some ways, but it has. So it's something for us to also remember. Sorry, there's a tangent. Okay, eating disorder. I forgot your question. Um how do you think providers can providers do right how can they do better sorry i got lost um i actually that maybe i did sort of answer it i think that people have to understand how important gender is to everybody's experience right um and when we when we don't consider i think the expansiveness of gender and then the limiting that society does with regards to gender we can miss a lot of different pieces of what can help somebody feel more confident and assertive um and in control of their lives all of which are risk factors right for eating disorders if they don't have those things um that's one. The other one is that I think most providers are quick to reduce eating uh disorders. uh, people who have eating disorders um, to a, a sort of stereotype, right? A skinny white woman, um, somebody who's cisgender, somebody who's straight, right? And not considering that eating disorders can present differently for lots of different people. Um, people of color are far less likely to be diagnosed with eating disorders. Um, there's a lot of people who are fat who have eating disorders that nobody notices, right? And, and actually people are, are, are very quickly dismissive of different sized bodies in eating disorder care. So I think we need to start start thinking really extensive, expansively about care, um, and that can improve any any provider's ability. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.
2: Hello, my name's Jana, and my I pronouns know. are she, her, and I'm the mom of a trans person and support parents and grandparents, so thanks for mentioning the grandparents because I yeah. agree <laughs> that it's really about if we're lifelong learners mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. And um, But I have a question. You sort of started touching on it, the trans-exclusionary radical feminist, mm. and... I, as a yoga teacher and person who has been in the feminist space for quite a long time, have come up against specific voices saying, by using, I'm also a birth educator, Mm -hmm. by using words like birthing people that we're excluding Mm -hmm. and erasing women, which I feel the opposite. I feel that it's an inclusive language and that I don't not use women, but I also use birthing people, which some people say... I shouldn't use woman or womb or uterus and that, you know, so there's a lot of policing around language on a lot of angles. So I'm just wondering what you would say to someone who says you are erasing women. If you're using the word birthing people or pregnant people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I think you get my idea. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. Um,
1: this is something that I've, that I've, I, I think thought a lot about because I think it's, um, A lot of times the folks who are resistant from turf be backgrounds. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, trans-exclusionary radical feminist is a term that um, is assigned to, um, quote, feminists, uh, self-proclaimed feminists who don't believe that trans people belong in the feminist movement, specifically trans women, um, as women, right? Um, and so it's, it's trans-exclusionary radical feminism. It really isn't um, radical or feminist, um, but it's just sort of trans-exclusionary. Uh, but that's, you know, besides the point. Some people will proudly claim themselves as TERFs. Some people, you know, hate the term and say, I'm, I'm not a turf. I'm a feminist, or whatever they say. Um, so, <laughs> that sorry. I do, yeah, or they'll say I'm J.K. Rowling. But, anyways. Um, <laughs> so, beyond beyond that, um, you know, I, I think that the reason I have. Um, felt tension in trying to answer questions like this is I don't want to erase women. And trans people don't want to erase cis women, because that's really what we mean when we say erase women. We don't mean erase all women, we mean specifically cis women. Um, nobody wants to erase cis women. We actually would love if all cis women would join us because our causes are the same. The enemy is the patriarchy, it's not a division of gender, right? Um, and it, it's not even men it's patriarchy. And I think we miss that, right? The enemy is not white people. It's white supremacy. The enemy is not able-bodied people. It's ableism, right? The enemy here is not men or women. It's patriarchy. It's this power stru- structure that empowers certain people over others. But that doesn't mean that specific people, specific men or what have you are, are, the, are the enemies. Um, and I think turf ideology misses that. And so when somebody says to me, I work in the menstrual uh, equality space, right? So for menstruation, I work with a company called August and they're a gender inclusive period care company. um, And I'm an advisor for them. And they talk about menstruators. That's their clientele is anybody who menstruates. And the argument is, well, don't reduce women to menstruation. And yes, I guess you could make the argument that that's what menstruator means, but it also doesn't. It's just literally somebody who menstruates. And the question is, if you feel erased by that, then I want to know why. What about you gets erased when I say you are somebody who menstruates? Because you're allowed to say you're a woman, right? Nobody's taking that away from you. We're just saying that this bigger term right doesn't have to segment this as to just women um so I, I i think it's really when i have individual conversations i'll just ask people like what what is your stake in this conversation what are you actually losing because i think we have to actually ask people that because they're not losing anything but they think they are and really they actually sorry i misspoke they're not losing what we, what they say that they're losing but they are losing something and that's default status all right so when people say oh, I feel erased by the fact that you're calling me a cis woman. I'm just a woman. I'm not a cis woman. I'm a, I'm a woman. I say, well, actually, you're both. You can be both, right? I'm a Korean man. I'm actually both Korean and a man. Um, and neither of those take away from each other, right? I'm just a man. I'm not Korean, right? But you hear you hear people say, well, I'm not white. I'm just a man right? Why is that? Why is it with white? Why is it with cis? It's because these are default identities. And people feel that their power is slipping when we say, actually, we are, we're including everybody here. And they are losing power. That is true. Um, so it's about grappling with that. Why can't you let that power go? why can't you let more people be in this space? Your movement will be bigger if you do, but it's because their, their power structure will shift. Um, so that's not a direct answer necessarily or a recommendation, but I think it's, it's an invitation for all of us to examine why we might feel erased in a moment when a term is actually more inclusive, right? Literally including more people in a category um, and, and, and we have to investigate our own insecurities in that moment.
3: Hi there. My name is Izzy. I use she, her pronouns and I'm fangirling right now. So you might pick up on some nervous energy. No worries. I think you're so dope. I've been following you for years and I just really admire and respect all that you do. Thank you. Um, So I actually have two questions. Okay. The first one being um, my partner, actually my fiance over here and I. Oh,
2: congratulations. (laughs) Thank
3: you. We are in the process of building our online presence and really just want to add to, you know the diversity online and sharing more stories and more of like our representation. And I just wondered what advice you have as someone who's built a platform online in terms of, you know, navigating online spaces as a queer person Mm. um, and just all that that holds. Cause I know you have to field a lot.
1: Yeah. um, Well, first of all, again, congratulations um, on your engagement. (laughs) Um, I, whenever somebody asks me about, entering into a space as a public figure, as an advocate, as a speaker, what have you, um, I actually do, I think what maybe some people find annoying, but as I want to backpedal a little bit and say, what's your goal? Why are you doing it? And do you have the tools to k- take care of yourselves? Um, and I don't. I'm, I'm not. I don't want to like pry specifically into you. You don't have to answer any of these questions. Um, and I don't want you to feel that I either doubt you either. But I know for me, I didn't have the scaffolding around diving into this that I would have wanted to have. Um, I had a lot of privilege that allowed me to be okay anyways. Right. I had the access to therapy. I had access to supportive parents and friends. Um, I was in school with a community already. Right. So I had a lot of Plan Bs that I was able to fall back on, and still I struggled, right? Um, and a lot of people will ask me, well, I want to be an advocate just like Hugh Skyler. I'm like, well, okay, well, what do you, you know, what do you want to do there? I want to be a speaker. I'll be like, well, do you like speaking? No, I don't. Okay, well, um, let's go backwards again, right? So my question is then, what do you want to do, right? So I think we have to also think a little bit more critically sometimes. And I'm not saying you haven't, right? I don't know. I understand. Um, but I think it's really important for us in the world where anybody can pick up a phone and be an advocate and an influencer, creator, or whatever you want to call it, and be in the eyes of way more people than we ever could have 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago. Um, we have to be really mindful with how we do it. There is an, a massive amount of influx of opinions, even for accounts that are, you know, People are for accounts that are 100,000 people. And that influx can be really detrimental for certain people. So, creating ways to either um, sort of mitigate that, right? Turning off comments, not reading them, being careful about when you do, right? Um, or deciding that maybe that's not the, the way of advocacy you want to go. Maybe you want to do speaking where you're not on social media. Maybe you want to do right, writing op eds or whatever, right? I think we have to think about that in a way that's very careful. Um, because if we don't, we hurt ourselves, right? And when we hurt ourselves, we actually hurt the whole community. And I think we forget that too. We, with, martyrdom is actually a community grief. It is not just one person. When I do too much, which I, I do, it's a, it's a. If we all know that, perhaps. But um, I, when I do too much, I'm, I'm something I'm working on because when I do too much, I'm now realizing I'm an example for other people. And so I see young people look at me and they say, "Oh, well, Skyler's doing this, so I should too." No. So I have to learn, um, I'm I'm learning out loud as I'm speaking, um, how I show up so that I teach and I lead so that other people show up in similar ways, right? Um, Or don't show up in similar ways as I have recently because I've been doing too much, right? So I think we have to think about that sort of self-care first and foremost.
3: Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Well, speaking of that, my second question is actually... Just what are some things that are bringing you joy right now? Um, Specifically, like trans joy. So any moments that have felt really affirming lately and also just general joy.
1: Yeah. Um, I'll give you a quick answer because I want to make sure we have time for other folks. Um, I'll say in short... it's been connecting with my body, um, which for me looks a lot like exercise. Um, I recently have, I'm going to say become a runner. I've been trying to run. (laughs) Um, and I I ran a half marathon trained by one of my friends, Cal. Cal, where are you? Cal's back there. Um, and we even went on a run this morning. So I'm like, I'm becoming a runner. Um, maybe I can say I'm a runner. I think I'll say I'm a runner. Okay. I'm a runner. Um, it's been really exciting to do a new athletic activity. One that I'm Horrible at, <laughs> um, but it's fun because it's different. And it's a con- again connection with my body, um, and unlike swimming, I've actually run almost exclusively with other trans masculine folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and in in swimming, I never swam with trans people. Um, and I've almost all my running buddies are are trans except for one, um, and he's all right, so that's that's okay. <laughs> yeah,
4: thank you. yeah, thank you. Hi, my name is uh, Lh. I actually just go by Lh. That's my pronoun. They is okay, too. Awesome. Uh, I am identify as non-binary trans mask, and I actually recently got top surgery this year, and it feels really great. That's awesome. Thank you. So my question is actually related to that. Um, I'm very active, and I travel, and I have the privilege to do so, but I do find myself always conflicted to take my shirt off, and even Mm. when I do take it off, there's all these thoughts. Um, How do you navigate being visibly, you know, different from others and everyone sees that They're, they obviously will never think of non-binary first mm. and i also have an undercoat with long hair so it f- screws everybody's <laughs> thoughts <laughs> yeah. when they see me with my shirt off uh which is both painful and also very pleasurable at the same sure. time um sure. so yeah i guess like what have you learned over time to navigate being around people especially strangers when you're trying to find joy in just being who you are in that moment with your shirt off
1: yeah Um, Thank you for sharing that uh, with us. I think it depends on the moment. It depends on how I am. (laughs) It depends on who I'm around. Um, One of the things I do remind myself is my transness is never as obvious to other people as it is to me. And I'm going to extend that to anybody here. Your transness is never as obvious to other people um, as it is to you, because oftentimes we are always thinking about it. Right? I don't know about you, but I feel like my life is like a constant gender studies class, right? <laughs> um, and and so that means I'm always thinking, oh are they thinking about my transness, right? Even though I know, like, logically, the way that I present, the way I walk through the world, most people do not know that I'm trans. Even when they see the pin or the trans shirts, they'll tell me, oh, thank you for your allyship. I'll be like, allyship, excuse you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that happens to me, right? And that's a privilege, right? It's also erasure. Both are true. Um, so I want to reinforce, though, even if you don't look just like me, you said, like, long hair and such, um, it's still something you're more cognizant of and conscious of than other people. Um, I, I've, like this is a hilarious story on my team. Um, everybody knew there was a trans guy on the team. Most of them knew it was me. I thought everybody knew it was me. Um, but after the first year it's like several months into training. Um, and, and again, there's articles that have been posted all over. Like everybody knew there's a trans guy on the team. One of the guys on the team did not know it was me. Um, and he like straight up came up and was like, what happened to your chest? And I was like, what? wait, hold on this is top surgery for, for what? And I was like, wait, well, you don't know that I'm trans? <laughs> like. And that happened two years in a row, okay? <laughs> um, multiple people. <laughs> thought this, uh, which I just think is hilarious, but it shows how even when they know there's a trans person on the team, I was wearing, I was naked in a Speedo with my scar, you know, with my no bulge in my Speedo, right? And they still don't know. So I think it's important for us to remember that. And that was early, early in my transition, right? I did not look the way that I do now. Um, One. Two, um, I like to remind myself why I'm showing up in a space, right? Am I taking off my shirt to prove to other people that I'm man enough, that I'm this, that I'm that, that trans bodies are beautiful, blah, blah, blah. No, I'm, I'm taking off my shirt because I want to feel the sun on my chest, right? I'm taking off my shirt and I'm in a Speedo because I love to swim, right? I'm, I'm wherever I am for me. And if you can remind yourself of that and, and step into your why, then their, their like pain, their issues, whatever, that's still true. I'm not trying to push it away. It's just here and you're here. And I think imagining, um, literally taking it out of the main sort of view and saying, yes, it's here. I'm not going to dismiss that. I'm going to honor it. It's painful. I I don't like that I have to think about how other people think about me um, for safety, for, you know, my my okayness. Um, But I'm also here because of this reason. And can I really honor that, too?
4: Yeah. Thank you.
1: Yeah. hey. Hey. Hey.
5: Uh, I'm Gavin. My pronouns are they, he, she. Um, I actually swam with Skylar at school for many years. Yeah, we so.
1: were recruited all yeah, those years lots ago.
5: Of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lots of shared memory. Um, and I think, you know, having kind of witnessed a lot of um, that experience, although I have to admit, I haven't quite read that chapter in your book yet. Um, but I'm curious about, you know, I know that I saw a lot of the ways that I felt like Harvard swimming, you know, lifted you up and celebrated you and supported you. But I also saw the ways that they failed you. And I'm just curious, you know, what your, what are some big kind of lessons learned from that? And I guess in terms of two coaches and teammates and, you know, any athletic department and such, you know, what are some key takeaways and lessons learned from that? If, you know, having trans, people on your team, um, or, you know, wanting to include them, um, you know, what you think about that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Good to see you. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um, gosh, you know, I, I, I feel very, I feel very lucky to have the support that I did. Right. So, so the women's coach. Steph, who you know, the men's coach Kevin. Um, both of these coaches, for anybody who hasn't read these pieces of story, don't know they were very supportive of me, and that they said, "Cool, we'll figure it out. We don't know what the heck we're doing, but let's figure it out, right?" And I, was, I think that was the best they could have asked for them. There wasn't language and sort of resources. I, you know, Kevin had apparently taken a gender studies class, and so he had actually some language, which was quite impressive, and that was all, that was all I could ask for them. Um, And I think they did a a, a pretty good job of of at least trying to show up and saying, I don't know. And I I also, by the way, recommend this for all coaches. If you don't know, say you don't know, right? If you're an adult of any kind, especially if you're a parent, my number one parenting advice, by the way, this is Side note is to say, I don't know when you don't know, please stop trying to tell your kids that you know everything when you don't, because saying, I don't know is a welcome to them. It says, Hey, we can be in this together. We can figure it out together. And that's exactly what the coaches did. Um, At the same time, there is only so much control that coaches can have of 40 college boys (laughs) and they're technically men, but they're really boys, Um, including me. (laughs) Uh, And I, I think that I don't know if I would call it failure as much as I would call it just really walking into the unknown. Um, I think we really um, struggled—I really struggled to feel like I belonged uh, on the team. Um, And I had really lovely people who stood up for me, who corrected the people when they misgendered me, who said, hey, you belong here and were really kind to me. And I also had guys on the team that weren't so excited about me being there. Um, And I think I— I don't know. There's, I, I, there's nothing I could have changed because it just was what it was, especially in the time period that it was. But what I do wish was that I had a mentor of some kind. I wish that there was another trans person who could say, hey, I, I know what you've been through. I get it. Here's, here's me being with you in this space. Not even trying to fix it, but I just, I get it. Um, but there was no other trans person that had been on a men's team for four years and could say, I get it. right? And so a lot of times I, I went back and I cried alone in my room. You know, and I, I had to find ways to support myself in those moments, and I tried to lean on my teammates, but it was hard because their, even their love and compassion didn't have the "I get it." right? Um, And I I think that's what I, that was the biggest part of what I missed. And so my advice is to find ways to create community, specifically a connection to other trans people for your trans athletes, right? Um, I think that most teams can have um, a connection. I mean, they could email me, honestly, like, um, but there's more and more of us, right? So we can find that connection. I'm also, I really want like a trans athlete network, but that's a, that's a different story. Um, But I think that that's, that's the missing piece is that I didn't have somebody to say, Hey Skylar, I feel you. Like I'm, I'm with you. I get it. Um, I had people who loved me and who cared about me, but were like, I don't get it. <laughs> um, and I can't get it. And, and I don't know how else to help you. Um, but I have that now. Um, and I'm, and I'm so grateful for it.
6: Cool. Uh, hi Skylar. Hi. My name is Claire Prouse. Uh, my pronouns are she and her. Um, I want to first say, thanks so much for sharing your story on Instagram. I've learned so much. Um, I've you know the perspective and especially knowledge or sharing around trans people in sport. Um so I am working to build a professional fixed gear cycling league right now, making the leap from community organizing uh into the big leagues hopefully. Um and one thing that my business partner and I are trying to do is to start with a non-binary category right at the jump. Um so we're working with non-binary cyclist and consultant um, Sebastian Sutherland out of Amsterdam to build our inclusion policies and our race categories. But uh, I wanted to take the opportunity to ask what resources you might feel comfortable recommending so that I can continue to educate myself as I'm working, um, as we're working with SEB, um, or any knowledge or advice that you feel comfortable. I know it's not, you know, it's not like directly what you're speaking on, but um, any knowledge or advice that you feel comfortable sharing. Um, and also influencers, uh, in sport in the non-binary space. i um, kind of excited that Cal is here. Um, but yeah, uh, and also, sorry, trans men in cycling who are working as influencers. I haven't been able to find any of them. So I just wanted to ask, sorry. It's a yeah.
1: Big... Okay. Let, let, let me see if I can answer all the questions. Um, Okay. <laughs> My, my main thing is going to be to interact with non-binary athletes so as somebody who's not non-binary I cannot speak directly on having a non-binary experience um, it is great that Cal's here so if Cal wants to talk to you then you could talk to them but if they don't want to talk to you then don't talk to them um, <laughs> always ask for consent um, so I think interacting like I said non-binary athletes um, there's also lots of other non-binary athletes um, in many different categories and you don't have to do just cycling yes obviously that's the best because it's the same sport that, that you're talking about but I, I if you can't find specific people in the, in the sport. I think you can expand beyond that to find athletes with a lived experience because in a, at the end of the day, sport is sport. And I think many things are similar um, in that sense. Um, Chris Mosier is a cyclist. Um, he's not only a cyclist. He's done the, the duathlon, which is run, bike, run. Um, and so you could, I mean, he's a great person any, any time to talk to about trans athletes, um, but could talk specifically about cycling. Um, and then what was the last question? Just Did I do it? Influencers, oh, influencers.
6: Specifically, any trans men cyclists?
1: I don't think I know any trans men cyclists specifically. Um, they're probably out there, but I can't think of any specific ones. So if I think of some, I'll let you know. <laughs> um, but I hope that sort of helps your, your question.
4: Thank you. Yeah. I think All we're at right. time. Can
1: I can I share a story to, before we close? I know yeah. we're a little over, but I want to share a story to wrap it yes, up. Yes,
0: and then I have I get I get the last question.
1: You get the last question. I, I do. Okay, yeah. you get the last. The story should close. So you. I oh, okay. Okay.
0: Well, the the, the last um, question is well. First, let me just say thank you so much for being here, Skylar Baylor, everyone, and yeah. Thank you. Um somebody had mentioned it earlier, congratulations again on Thank nuptials you. and finding your life partner. I mentioned that it was kinda sad. Uh, she's not here today, but yeah. that last question is really, you know, getting to this part. Mm. And uh now that, you know, it sounds like you've found happiness at least in a partner forever. <laughs> um uh share share with us kinda, you know, what's next for Skylar. Mm. You had said, yeah, you don't have kids. And you'd said in the Leslie Stahl interview, you don't know if you're going to have kids or not, yeah. but will you? It's funny. everybody keeps
1: asking about having kids. Yeah. Um, uh, it's like, a, it, I, I, I was, um, talking with a friend of mine who's also queer and he's, um, he's older than me. He's in his, I think fifties. And he was like, I, I mentioned him before we told everybody that we got married. We kept it a secret for nine months, um, which is a, which is a fun game when both people are influencers and online. Um, but, I, but I'm good at keeping my own secret, which is good. Um, so I told him, I was like, yeah, we're getting ready to announce that we got married, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he was like, watch out. They're going to start asking if you want kids. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> I am constantly asked now if I want kids. Um, I have a dog and I'm great with a dog. Um, we've had many conversations about whether or not we want kids and we, they never really go anywhere except for that we like our dog. So um, we're having a, and you know what? Dogs are kids too. So they are, um, they are. They are.
0: <laughs> I, I guess yeah. I didn't really actually. No, no, no. Mean, Like, do you? Want I, know, I know, I know. I'm really
1: using bad. it as a risk. What's the, what is? Yeah. The what's what's the future? I don't know. Um, I am currently applying to PhD programs for clinical psychology. Um, so I have been on. This is where the whole like doing too much thing comes in. Um, I've also been on an 18 city book tour, um, and then I decided to stick a half marathon in the middle of that, and then. And we just had the deadlines for, a for my applications. Um, but my hope is that in the next, I don't know, my 10 year plan is that I'll be in a PhD program of some kind. But they have to like me. So we'll see. What, well, TBD, you'll, you'll know if you're online. Um, Yeah. I don't know what the plan is. I I, I wanted to say, and then I'll I'll tell my story. A lot of times this is like a common thing that's happened since I've announced being married. People say this to me, Oh, you found happiness. Like you've done it, Skylar. Like what's it like, you know? Um, and I, I, I'm not saying you're saying all those things, but I, I hear it, especially from people that, that meet me. And, um, I have a lot of parents that will come to me too. And they'll say, um, way more than I expected. They'll say, I'm so glad that you shared about your marriage online. It, it just gives me so much hope. My kid is trans and now I've seen that you, you've gotten married and it just gives me so much hope for my kid. And I feel so conflicted when I hear this, right? I, I, I wanna say, wow, thank you, awesome, great. But there's another part of me that's like, what, what, what else were you thinking? You thought your kid was unlovable until you saw me get married? Right? You thought your kid was gonna grow up and not get married because they're trans? Really? So I want, I want to make space here for, for trans people. And maybe this was part of your psyche, maybe not, but for a lot of people, when they tell me, thank you for sharing that you got married, it's giving me hope. What they really mean is I had no hope for you prior, right? I thought trans people weren't gonna find love. And I think there's something deeply broken about our society that we believe this about trans people. And we believe it about anybody, whoever we think can't be lovable, can't find a relationship. Um, and I think it is deeply deeply um, harmful to young trans people that we have this beliefs because if you're a parent, your kid knows you feel this way, whether or not you say it. So I I want us to to really revisit this belief, this excitement that I've gotten married. You can be excited that I got married. I'm excited too, but think about what surrounds it, right? Are you excited because I'm trans? Or are you excited because it's an exciting prospect, right? Um, I think we really, we really have too much transphobia surrounding this that we don't even see, um, and it's 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 really sad to me because I was I was lovable and and loving my life and enjoying myself before I got married too, right? And and my partner is a wonderful, beautiful human, and I love her very much, but she's not. a a, a trophy to, to, to get one day. Yes, I've gotten married. It's done. No, it's like the beginning it's, or it's the middle or it's the whatever, but it's not any kind of end trophy. I think we have to dissect that narrative.
0: I'm just Again, so hopeless, romantic, and did I not, wanted to. No, and that's I what I said. What married life was like, you know. Totally. I'm <laughs> sorry. I did not mean
1: it's, it's no, nothing cute, but at all. I love you, that but.
0: you said that because it's very true. You know,
1: it's a big, proof. strong belief about trans yeah. people, right? That, we, that we're not going to be loved. And yeah. I had so many kids come up to me and they'll say, the first thing my parents said to me when I came out was, but who's going to love you? And the answer should be the parent. You should say, I love you, right? It shouldn't be, but who's going to love you? Lots of people are going to love you. Trans people are fucking awesome. Excuse my language. Okay, my story to end. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, speaking about love. When um, I came out, I was very terrified about who was going to love me and who was going to stop loving me. Um, one of the people, the, the person I was most afraid of was my Halmuni, my grandmother. Um, and so my grandmother is my mom's mom. That's how that works. Um, she is Korean um, and specifically North Korean. And I say this because um, my, my grandmother escaped from North Korea with her family when she was 13 years old. She walked from Pyongyang, which is the now capital of North Korea, um, to Seoul. And uh, again, she was 13 years old. Her, her mother led the charge. Um, She walked down to Seoul, then that's where my mom was born, and then I was born in the States. So this very strong history of womanhood brought me from North Korea to South Korea, all the way across the oceans, right, to the United States. Um, And I'm the first of my Korean family to be born in the United States. When I was coming out I, I didn't know how to communicate this to Harmony, to my grandmother. I didn't have the language. There is no word for transgender in Korean. It's just transgender said with a Korean accent. Um, <laughs> sounds like transgender. Um, gay is gaye. <laughs> so, you know, translation wasn't going to help at all. Um, and so instead, I explained hey this is what it means to be trans this is how I am trans and I wrote this in this big long letter um, and it took me a long time to write the letter it was actually a month after I had come out on Facebook and I'd blocked Harmony on Facebook uh, because I, I wanted to tell her on my own in my own way and so I, like I said I crafted this big letter my mother and I went to go read Harmony this letter we sat down at the kitchen table it's my grandfather my grandmother my great-aunt um, and I read them the letter. I'm not optimistic, by the way. Like, this isn't like a, hey, this is going to go well. I'm like excited. Maybe it's going to go badly. But like, it's okay. No, it was like a, this is going to go badly. Maybe there's a chance it will go okay, right? We were very pessimistic. But I was telling her because I felt I had a responsibility to communicate this to her. Right? I wanted her to know. Um, so I said all of my things in the letter. I said, how do I'm telling you this because I love you, because I respect you, and because I desperately hope you'll stay in my life. I ended with, with I love you. And then I waited. And my, my Harabaji, my grandfather, he started clapping. this like slow old man clap. And he goes like this and he says, oh, so you come out of closet now. <laughs> I was like, "Hadabaji, what? <laughs> you don't speak a whole lot of English, but you have the words coming out of the closet. He says, oh, congratulations. Both times with the hand movement. So we've passed the test with Harabuji. Um, my my great aunt, she gives me a squeeze on my hand. Um, her love has been communicated. She gets up to make tea. <laughs> Harmony is the one I'm nervous about, right? And she's the one who's sitting there. She's got this really stern look on her face, a Haramuni face. She's like, I knew that. <laughs> I was like, Haramuni, what do you mean you knew that? I didn't know that. You knew that? She goes, I knew that. Okay. I have two grandsons from your mother. That's fine. My mom is in tears. Mine are, you know, it's coming, it's getting there, but I'm like, what is going on here, folks? This is a little too easy. <laughs> And my harmony launches into this discussion of how it's normal that I'm transgender. All these things made me transgender. She says, Oh, you have boy hormones. I'm like, how I don't have those. That's actually kind of part of the problem here. And she goes into this, you know, scientific mumbo jumbo. It's mumbo jumbo. None of it is true. It's not all correct, but it doesn't matter. It got her there. Right? So she goes through all this. She pauses and she says, okay, you can be a boy. You can be a brother. She said, you can be a husband. I was like, honey, I am 18. Please slow down. She says, oh, you can be a doctor now. (laughs) Okay, we got to come back to that one. (laughs) She says, you can be a man, but in Korean culture, it's the daughter's responsibility to take care of the parents. Your mother has no daughters, so it is still your responsibility, Skylar, to take care of your parents. I have her words, pumo hyodo, it means mother, father, filial piety, take care of your parents, tattooed in my grandmother's handwriting beneath my mastectomy scar next to my heart. It is my tribute to my history, the people from which I come, my culture, my grandmother, all this strong womanhood that birthed me, that brought me into the world, right? The daughterhood I was assigned, never truly identified with, but the duties of which I will fulfill. I share this story to close. First, because there's a lot of intersections there that I think we often miss, and because I think my grandmother is a powerful example of love, right? She had every excuse she could have used to say no. An 85-year-old Korean Catholic woman, very Catholic, I forgot that detail at the beginning, very Catholic. Okay, now she goes to Zoom Mass, Zoom Mass, and YouTube Mass, Um, YouTube Mass she recently discovered, which means she can literally go at any time. Um, So when I arrive, we go to YouTube Mass. (laughs) Um, Very devout, very Catholic, immigrant woman who doesn't even speak fluent English. And she said, hey, I'm here. I love you, right? If my grandmother, my honey can do that, anybody can. Does that mean anybody will? No, right? And unfortunately, my experience is not common. It is a privilege. It should not be a privilege. It should be common, right? And we're working, we're fighting for that day, and I hope you will join me. But in the meantime, Harmony can be this powerful example of unconditional love. Not only the unconditional love that we all deserve, but unconditional love we can all give. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you.
0: Skyler is signing uh, your books and we have two books available today so if you have one copy and not the other it's your lucky day you can get both copies um, so we'll sign right outside the door thank you all so much for being here It's the Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California and thanks to all of you online who have joined us thank you to the Bernard Osher Foundation again for supporting this program I'm Michelle Miao we'll see you next time